Hello, comrades. My name is Rob. Uh, Trisha is also here. We are going to be rebroadcasting the Marxism-Leninism-Maoism class from the UPM Education Series. Um, we're just going to rebroadcast the Zoom meeting. Um, so, you know, just bear with us. They usually start, uh, you know, a little bit late to give everybody time to get in. Um, so, yeah, just uh, bear with us. I just put another announcement in there. If anyone was going to join in, kind of expected, like I said, it was going to be a, a small class meeting today. Yeah, I just figured I'll just give it a couple more minutes. Oh, shit. Nice background. Too bad, too bad Quinn and them can't come on. Yeah, I don't even know what Quinn's, what Quinn's doing. All I know is that we're supposed to play Halo at some point later. Yeah. Uh, I know they were going to come on before and they didn't have uh, the data to download the Zoom app, I think, was the, was the issue then. Yeah. That's always been an issue. I hate that if some if some people can't make it to these uh these next few chapters, because pretty soon we got a whole uh the whole <laughs> it's coming up soon about uh Trotsky. There's a pretty there's a pretty thorough uh, analysis of the whole Trotsky situation. I think that's coming up in a couple of weeks. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Gotta love I Trotsky. Think, I think everyone should be on uh, that on that chapter. 
Well, will it, uh, will it get broadcast on that, uh, uh, whatever page that is? Uh, for you or many? Yeah. What? You say, is it going to be put on, like, uh, the, the page live streamed? Yes. I Nice. Okay, cool. Well, I'll start recording then. Recording right. in progress. This meeting is being recorded. All right, well, we'll just go ahead and get started then. And if anyone meanders in, we'll just uh, invite them. Let's see, so we're on in chapter 18, which is the formation of the Third International. Uh, the end of World War One was a period of revolutionary upsurge throughout the world. The success of the October Revolution had an impact in numerous countries, even where Marxism had little or no influence. Europe, the main battlefield of the war, was in the deepest revolutionary crisis. The war had resulted in the overthrow of four emperors and the breakup of their four great empires, the Russian, German, Austro-Hungarian, which was Habsburg, and Turkish, which would be the, which, uh, which would be the Ottoman. Uh, the state structures were in shambles, and the masses were in the mood for revolt. The mass protests started even before the completion of the war. In January 1918, a wave of mass political strikes and anti-war demonstrations swept through Central Europe. This was followed by revolts in the armed forces of various countries. Uh, there was also a national upsurge, which led to the formation excuse me, of many new states after the breakup of the old empires. In Germany and Hungary, however, the crisis led to revolution. Uh, in November 8, 1918, German sailors mutinied, and this immediately launched a wave of revolt through Ger throughout Germany, resulting in the overthrow of the emperor and the establishment of a republic under the leadership of the Social Democratic Party. Uh, Soviets were immediately established in Berlin and in other cities. These were, however, crushed in January 1919 after two weeks of street fighting against the reactionary military forces, which had been reorganized by the Social Democratic government. Uh, later, the Soviet Republic was formed in Bavaria, the province of Germany, in April 1919. Uh, but this too was crushed. In Hungary, the communists led a coalition with the Social Democrats and took control of the government in March 1919. They were, however, thrown out within five months by military pressure from allied governments. The struggles of the workers continued for at least four more years, but both these revolutions finally ended in failure. Uh, nevertheless, the rising tide of revolution and the success of the revolution in Russia led to the formation of communist parties in many countries. A real basis now existed for a union of the communist parties for the formation of the third, inter the, the third communist international. As mentioned earlier, Lenin and the Bolsheviks had given the call for the formation of the third international in 1914. Now they took the initiative for actually setting it up. In January 1919, uh, Lenin addressed an open letter to the workers of Europe and America urging them to found the Third International. Soon after, invitations for an international congress were sent out. 
in March 1919, the first Congress of the Communist Parties of various countries held in Moscow founded the Communist International. The Congress set up an executive committee of the Third Communist International just a month after the first Congress. Lenin explained the historical significance of the Third International in the following way. Uh, the first international laid the foundation of the proletarian international struggle for socialism. The second international marked a period in which the soil was prepared for the broad mass spread of the movement in a number of countries. The third international has gathered the fruits of the work of the second international, discarded the opportunists, social chauvinists, bourgeois and petty bourgeois, uh, dross, and has begun to implement the dictatorship of the proletariat. He thus pointed out that the most significant aspect of the Third International was that it now represented the proletariat that had succeeded in seizing state power and it began to establish socialism. After intense preparatory work, the Second Congress of the Communist International held in July 1920 was a major success with a wide representation from 41 countries uh, Lenin made major contributions to Marxist theory in connection with this Congress. He prepared what he intended as a handbook of Communist Party strategy and tactics, which was distributed amongst the delegates of the Congress. It was called Left-Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder and concentrated on correcting the leftist, quote-unquote, errors then prevalent in many parties, which had joined the International uh, Lenin also prepared the theses on the national and colonial question adopted at the Congress. It was a landmark document which laid the Marxist-Leninist theoretical foundations for understanding and leading the national liberation struggles gathering momentum in all colonies and semi-colonies at that time. In addition, Lenin outlined the basic tasks of the Communist International and the, the, the theses on the agrarian question adopted at this Congress. Congress also adopted theses on the role of the Communist Party in the proletarian revolution, on the trade union movement, and Communist parties in parliament, and the statutes and conditions of admission to the Communist International. Uh, in its statutes, the common turn, Communist International, clearly declared that it quote-unquote, breaks once and for all with the traditions of the Second International for whom only white-skinned people existed. Besides theoretical formulations, the International, through its executive committee, started playing a prominent role in guiding the parties and movements in its various member countries. In particular, it tried to make the utmost of the post-war revolutionary situation in the capitalist countries, which continued until 1923. However, due primarily to the betrayal of the Second International Social Democrats and also the ideological and organizational weaknesses of the Communist parties in these countries. A revolution could not be successfully completed in any other capitalist country. Comintern, however, played an important role in establishing, developing, and guiding the newly formed Communist parties in colonies and semi-colonies. During the 1920s, as national liberation movements in these countries advanced rapidly, the Comintern attempted to guide and train the Communist parties to provide the leadership to these movements. It was the first time that Marxism was building a base among the people of the backward countries of the world. Oh. 
I think it's really important to point out that he mentioned the whole uh, breaks once and for all the traditions of the second international for whom only white skinned people existed because that definitely played a big part in uh, the USSR's uh, criminalization of racism that came uh, in the 30s, I do believe, whenever the Great Depression was. Uh, yeah, I think another important thing to, is to point out is like how important that Lenin seen of reforming the, I don't want to use reforming, to formulate the Third International right after the revolution and help correct these lines because how, how inter Oh, before you get back to reading, can you share your screen? Yeah, it should be sharing. No, I just, I'm just seeing you. Awesome. So that stopped. Hang on. <laughs> uh, is that better? There we are. Got it. Uh, I think it's also important to point out uh, since we would have gone over it previously, but the... Uh, concept of revolutionary defeatism and not taking a, a side in a, between two imperialist powers or two bourgeois powers in general and uh, how that applies to the whole Russia and Ukraine situation because uh, that's obviously a, a hot topic or whatever recently but neither side is the correct side and both sides are, one side is obviously backed by the U.S. And obviously that's never good with NATO and all that. But Russia's goals are also imperialist. So standing in between two imperialist powers like that is uh, definitely important. Uh, because obviously Lenin had the right idea of not taking part in it. And he withdrew everyone from the war, which ultimately made it easier for him to, you know, come right off the heels of the war and go straight into the common terms because he focused on what was most important. 
Yeah. Can you imagine a World War Three where, uh, like, you're like there's a group of socialists supporting the bourgeois, the bourgeois side of the U.S. It's like, hold on, wh- where'd you get, where'd you get that analysis from? Like, they're the enemy of the proletariat internationally and domestically. So they got it from right. Jackson Engel. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, All right, chapter 19, the national and colonial question. The earliest national movements arose in Western Europe. These national movements were mainly led by bourgeoisie in their fight against feudalism, uh, which is important. I'll try and pull it up after this, but it's the bourgeois fight against feudalism. That's one of the, uh, the levels of conflict with dialectical materialism looks at uh, and it was a necessary revolution. Uh, but the main aim of these national movements was to unite into one nation and state a larger territory, uh, which was under the rule of numerous feudal lords. This was necessary in order for the bourgeoisie to obtain a single large market and avoid the harassment and domination of the various feudal lords. Thus, bourgeois revolution against feudalism and the national movement to establish a single nation state often combined into one. The national movement was not normally a struggle for independence from oppression by another nation. Uh, In the whole of Western Europe, the only place where a national movement for independence took place was when Ireland fought to free itself from Britain. Marx and Engels lived in this period when the later national liberation struggles were yet to break out in a major way. They thus did not devote much attention to developing Marx's theory on the national question. Marx, however, formulated the basic stand in relation to the Irish question by calling on the English proletariat to support the national struggle of the Irish people and oppose its national oppression. Uh, The next phase of national movements came in Eastern Europe. Uh, with the spread of capitalism and the weakening of the Austro-Hungarian and Russian empires, which that's another bit right there. Capitalism had a function at one point and was, I would say, absolutely necessary for the ability to uh, do things on mass as far as harvesting and stuff. Um, so national movements and organizations starting started growing in the whole of East Europe, including in Russia. It was necessary for the international proletarian movement and the RSDLP to have a proper understanding and stand on the question. During this period, Stalin in 1913 made the first systematic Marxist presentation on the national question. Stalin himself was a Georgian, member of an oppressed nationality in Russia, where a national movement was rapidly developing. In Georgia, it was therefore doubly necessary to present the correct Marxist understanding and take the correct political stand. This is what uh, Stalin attempted to do in his pioneering work, Marxism and the National Question. In his work, Stalin started by defining what is a nation. He defined a nation as, as, quote-unquote, an I a historically evolved, stable community of people based upon the common possession of four principal attributes, namely 
a common language, a common territory, a common economic life, and a common psychological makeup manifesting itself in common specific, uh, common specific features of national culture. Stalin rejected the concept concept of nation based merely of a nation based merely on religion or culture, like the Jewish people. He insisted that a community should have all of the above characteristics to be called a nation. Stalin proposed that such nations should have the right to self-determination. This right to self-determination, however, could be limited to autonomy or to the linking up in a federation, as some other parties of that time were proposing. The right to self-determination had to include the right of secession, i.e. to separate and exist as an independent state, However, Stalin pointed out that how to exercise the right depended on the concrete historical circumstances at a particular point of time. It was up to the revolutionaries to try and influence the nation's decision regarding self-determination. Uh, the decision of the Revolutionary Party would be based on whether autonomy or federation or, succession or secession or any other course would be in the best interest of the toiling masses and particularly the proletariat. Excuse me. Uh, though Stalin's presentation clarified many questions, it was still incomplete because it did not link the national question to imperialism and the question of colonies. This was only done after Lenin's analysis of imperialism in 1916. On the basis of an ana analysis of imperialism, Lenin linked the question of self-determination of nations to the national liberation struggles being waged in the colonial countries. Thus, it came to cover the vast majority of the world's peoples. It did not remain merely an internal state of an internal state problem of a few countries, which had been, had oppressed nationalities had oppressed oppressed nationalities within their boundaries. The national question became a world problem: the question of the liberation of the oppressed peoples of all dependent countries and colonies from the burden of imperialism. Thus, when Lenin, in 1916, presented his thesis on the socialist revolution and the right of nations to self-determination, he included all the countries of the world in his analysis. He divided the countries of the world into three main types. First, the advanced capitalist countries of Western Europe and the United States of America. These are oppressor nations who oppress other nations in the colonies and within their own country. The task of the proletariat of these ruling nations is to oppose national oppression and support the national struggle of the peoples oppressed by their imperialist ruling classes. Uh, second, Eastern Europe and particularly Russia. Uh, the task of the proletariat in these countries is to uphold the right of nations to self-determination. In this connection, the most difficult but most important task is to merge the class struggle of the workers in the oppressing nations with the class struggles of the workers in the oppressed nations. Third, semi-colonial countries like China, Persia, Turkey, and all the colonies, which had then combined population, which had then a combined population amounting to a billion. Excuse me. With regard to these colonial countries, Lenin took the stand that socialists must not only de demand the unconditional and immediate liberation of the colonies without compensation, but must also give determined support 
to the movement for national liberation in these countries and assist rebellion and revolutionary war against the imperialist powers that oppressed them. This was the first time within the international socialist movement that such a clear stand had been taken on the national colonial questions. There was naturally, thus, some debate and confusion. Uh, one such argument was that support to self-determination and national liberation went against proletarian internationalism. It argued that socialism aimed at the merger of all nations. Lenin agreed that the aim of socialism is to abolish the division of mankind into small states, bring nations closer together, and to even merge them. However, he felt it would be impossible to achieve this by, by the forced merger of nations. The merging of nations could only be achieved uh, only by passing through the transition period of complete liberation of all oppressed nations, i.e. their freedom to secede. While presenting the party program in 1917, Lenin said, we want free unification. That is why we must recognize the right to secede. Without freedom to secede, unification cannot be called free. This was the proletariat's democratic approach to the national question, which stood opposed to the bourgeoisie's policy of national oppression and annexation. Uh, I think that's important uh, when it comes to uh, areas like the Philippines or um, Nepal, especially right now. Nepal's getting bullied hardcore and trying to be forced to join either India or China. And it's not how things are supposed to be. Yeah, I, I don't uh, understand why people have a, a, a hard time understanding uh, the, co the contradictions between, um, you know, imperialism and self-determination and an oppressed nation versus an a, a oppressor nation. You know what I mean? So it's like the entire the entire existence of the U.S. being an oppressor nation, like its existence came to form as oppressors, as what they did to the indigenous, you know, and how the conflict with their self-determination, you know, and the, how do you rally behind something like that as something to uphold as as a uh, you know nationalism you know so it's it's pretty disgusting and it's hard to even try to conceptualize why people don't don't see that conflict there you know even Huey pointed it out Mao pointed it out Lenin pointed it out Stalin pointed it out but still here we are we're here supporting you still you see so-called socialists uh supporting um the oppress, oppressor nations, and it should be defeatism, like what you brought up um, earlier. It's, it's the fact that you can't have proletariat, uh, um, proletarian solidarity, and inter, you know, without su supporting the defeat of the what's oppressing the proletariat. And if your nation is oppressing this nation, then. There, then you should be supporting defeating your own nation as, as like in plain words. Um, and also I wanted to point out something too that imperialism, it isn't unique to capitalism. And uh, Lenin pointed that out as well. It just take on a, a different feature of imperialism um, under capitalism being the last stage of um, 
of capitalism and so on and what he wrote on that but like co- colonies these colonies that formed this the colonization that happened under feudalism was another form of imperialism and these effects are still like here today so like not to like we can't ignore that those type of things that we see across the planet that were results of this imperialism like these contradictions still exist like the indigenous people still have rights to self-determination you know so it's like i don't know i'm just getting all hyped up about it but it's i mean i just i, I can't fathom why people still want to support oppressors states well it brings up the point of social imperialism and the concept of you know some a place being socialist in in name and how they declare themselves but while ultimately not like they're they're a means of you know increasing their territories isn't it's not a peaceful thing it's more of a loans and i don't remember what i was reading the other day but last night I believe it was saying that you know imperialism isn't always ah it was a Sankara quote that's what it was Thomas Sankara was saying that imperialism isn't always just a, a forceful uh, war war driven thing sometimes it's just loans or food aid or something that causes you know another nation to rely on you with the con with the idea being that you're basically creating a welfare state at that point and instead of giving those things and it being with the intent of of growth and self-determination it's done in a way that then forces them to just do as you say and that just like is extremely prevalent in China like in the whole concept there uh, but also I mean if we're going to talk about self-determination again the Philippines like if you support you know the 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 rights to the indigenous people of the, the United States and wherever else you know, if you support their right to self-determination, then you should also support the right for the Philippines to have self-determination. But a lot of people don't. Or a lot of people just make excuses to, you know, oh, well, they should just do what China says and this, this, this and it is contradictory to the whole concept of land back, which those people also support. Chapter 20, The Early Life and Revolutionary Contributions of Stalin up to the 1917 Revolution. I really hope this mentions him robbing fucking banks. Oh, it, it implies <laughs> it. That's all. It doesn't really get into it, but it implies it. Before we start, I have my headcanon for that is 100% that Stalin suggested robbing banks and Lenin just like waved him off. Like, oh, yeah, whatever. And then Stalin just came back with bags of money. 
And Lennon was like, oh, you were serious. Adventurism wins. Went against the party line. <laughs> but, but you know what? It's acceptable today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes you have plus, I mean, they were, you know, trying to have a revolution after revolution. Sometimes you got to shake up the, the foundations a little bit. Uh, in the initial years after the October Revolution, Lenin directly guided all the affairs of the state and, and the party. In August 1918, there was an, an attempt on his life by a member of the Socialist Revolutionary Party. She was a nutbag, uh, which left two bullets in his body. Lenin was weakened by his attempt, but continued his rigorous work schedule, which only left him three to four hours sleep. This overwork soon started having a serious impact on his health, particularly his brain. From end 1921, he started getting severe headaches and spells of vertigo, an illness which causes uh, dizziness, which affected his work. In May 1922, he suffered a paralytic stroke that affected his right hand and leg and his power of speech. From that time on until his death, despite Lennon's many efforts to recover and get back to work, he could not play any effective role. Just before Lennon's stroke in April 1922, the Central Committee had elected Stalin as the General Secretary. Thus, Stalin, who took over the leadership of the party during Lennon's illness and after his death on January 21st, 1924. Uh, Stalin, meaning Man of Steel, was the first, was the most popular of many na party names for Joseph Vissario, Vissarionovich Jugashvili, Jugashvili. All right, who was born on December 21st, 18, 1879, in Gori, a small town in Georgia. Uh, which was then an oppressed nationality within the Russian Empire. Today, Georgia is an independent country. His parents were poor, illiterate descendants of serfs. His father, a few years after being released from slavery from his landlord, moved in 1875 from his village near Tiflis, the capital of the Caucasus, a uh, backward region of the Russian Empire, which was home to Georgia and several other oppressed nationalities. He set up a small shoemaker shop in Gori, the equivalent of a district town. Uh, he was not able to earn much, however, and left his wife and child in Gori to take a job in a shoe factory in Tiflis, where he died in 1890. Since Stalin's father did not contribute much to the household, his mother, Ekaterina, was the one who looked after him and brought him up. She worked long hours as a washerwoman, and her earnings paid for all the expenses of the household. She had three children before Stalin, who all died soon after birth. Uh, Stalin, being her only surviving son, uh, she made an, all efforts to give him a proper education. Despite her poverty, she did not send her son to work as would have been normal. She sent Stalin, at the age of nine, to the local church school. She herself put in a lot of effort and learned to read and write later in old age. Ekaterina was thus a remarkable example of the grit and determination of the working masses. Uh, Stalin personally experienced poverty from his earliest childhood days. His house consisted of two extremely small rooms, which served as shop, workshop, and home. Though Stalin was strong and hardy, he suffered an attack of smallpox at six or seven years of age, 
that left lifelong pockmarks on his face. He also had a blood infection, which brought him near death and permanently handicapped his left arm. During his five years at the Gorey School, Stalin was noted for his intelligence and his exceptional memory. It was here that Stalin came first into contact with nationalist ideas and went against religion. He started writing poetry and was influenced by Georgian literature and poetry, which had strong nationalist trends. It was during these years that Stalin was filled with strong feelings of fighting against social injustice and against the oppression of his people. Uh, due to his poverty, it should have been impossible for Stalin to go for higher education. However, he was recommended as the best student, quote-unquote, for scholarship by the school headmaster and the local priest. This enabled him to continue his studies from October 1894 at the topmost institution of higher learning in the Caucasus. This was the Theological Seminary, a college for training to become a Christian priest at Tiflis. Stalin's five years at the Tiflis Seminary were crucial formative years when he became a Marxist. Georgia and Stalin's youth was in a constant state of unrest. One of the sources of unrest was the rebellious mood of the peasantry, where the abolition of serfdom had been delayed even after it had been abolished in Russia. The other source was the constant inflow of revolutionary ideas from Russia. This was because the Tsarist government had a long history of deporting many of its rebels and bourgeois revolutionaries to the Caucasus. Later, these deportees even included Marxist worker revolutionaries like Kalinin, future president of the Soviet Union, and Alleluia, a Bolshevik organizer and later Stalin's father-in-law. The Tiflis Seminary was one such center of unrest. It was the main breeding ground of the, the local intelligentsia and also the main center of opposition to the Tsar. In 1893, just a year before Stalin joined the seminary, there was a strike which led to the dismissal of 87 students. The main leaders of the strike later became prominent Marxists and revolutionaries. One of the leaders, Ketskovoli, was also from Stalin's Gorey School, just three years his senior. He soon became Stalin's first political mentor. In the first year, Stalin immersed himself in reading all sorts of radical literature. This he had to do secretly because most books of non-religious and political nature were strictly banned in the seminary. His poetry, radical and political in nature, was published for the first time under another name in a leading Georgian magazine. This was the first time when Stalin, at the young age of 15, came into contact with secret Marxist study circles. Soon, Stalin came into the vigilance of the seminary authorities and was even sent to the punishment cell for reading forbidden literature. Around this time, he joined a secret debating circle in the seminary. This further increased his activities, which brought him into conflict with the seminary authorities more often. At the age of 18, in August 1898, he joined the Mesme Dasi, meaning the third group, uh, the first group of socialists in Georgia, whose leaders later became prominent uh, Mensheviks. 
Later, Stalin would say, I became a Marxist because of my social position. My father was a worker in a shoe factory, and my mother was also a working woman. But also because of the brush, also because of the harsh intolerance and Jesuitical discipline that crushed me so mercilessly at the seminary. The atmosphere in which I lived was saturated with hatred against Tsarist oppression. Outside the seminary in the city of Tiflis, the workers during this period were on the move. These years saw the first strikes in the Caucasus. As soon as Stalin joined the Mesame Days Dasi, uh, he was given the task of running a few worker study circles. He did this by holding secret meetings in the worker slums during the short amount of free time that he got from the seminary. Meanwhile, the seminary authorities were looking for an opportunity to deal with Stalin. Finally, he was expelled from the seminary in May 1899 on grounds of not having appeared for his examinations. Expulsion from the seminary, however, changed Stalin's revolutionary activities much. Uh, after a short stay with his mother in Gori, he was back in Tiflis, organizing and educating while staying among the workers. In December 1899, he took up a job as a clerk with the Tiflis Geophysical Observatory. This job, though paying very little, took very little time and provided an ideal cover from the Tsarist secret police. Under this cover, uh, Stalin continued to expand his activities. The next year, in 1900, he organized and spoke at the first May Day celebration held in the Caucasus. Due to the to Tsarist repression, this 500-strong meeting had to be held not in the city, but in the mountains above Tiflis. The meeting was an inspiring event, which led to strikes in the factories and railways in the following months. Stalin was one of the main organizers. The next year, it was decided to hold the May Day demonstration openly in the middle of Tiflis. But the main leaders were arrested in March 1901. Stalin's room, two, or two was raided, but he managed to escape. From that day onward until the success of the revolution in 1917, Stalin led the life of an underground professional revolutionary. His first task was to take over the leadership of the organization and go ahead and organize the May Day event despite the loss of the main leaders. This he did successfully, and despite arrests and violent attacks by the police, a historic 2,000-strong demonstration was held. These first years of Stalin and the socialist organization were also days of intense debate on economics and other issues. Within the Georgian organization, Stalin always opposed the opportunists who stood with and stood with the left wing. When Iskra started, Stalin's group was the first to become its enthusiastic supporters and distribute distribute it in Tiflis. They soon started an illegal paper in the Georgian language in September 1901 called Brzezola, meaning the struggle. Stalin was one of its principal authors, writing many articles basically upholding the Israel line. Of particular importance was a detailed article called The Russian Social Democratic Party and Its Immediate Tasks, which came out in December 1901. In... Uh... November 1901. Oh no. Okay. 
In November 1901, Stalin was elected to the Social Democratic Committee of Tiflis, which was the effective leading body for the whole of the caucus at that time. He was immediately sent to Batum, a town with a population of 25,000, which was a new center of the oil industry linked by an oil pipeline to the bigger and older oil town, Baku. He soon formed a town committee uh, there under the cover of a New Year's party. He also set up a secret press in the single room where he was staying. Many leaflets were published, which led soon to worker struggles. One such struggle led to police firing on a gathering in which 15 workers were killed. All these activities were carried out despite the opposition by the local socialists, who later became Mensheviks. Finally, after just four and a half months in the bottom, Batum, Stalin was arrested in April 1902 at a secret Batum committee meeting. Uh, the secret press, however, remained undiscovered. It was during the Batum period that Stalin took one of his many party names, by which he remained famous for the many years he worked in the Caucasus. He was called Koba, which meant the indomitable or unconquerable in Turkish. It was the name of the people's hero of one of the poems of Stalin's favorite writers in his youth. Stalin spent one and a half years in various jails. In jail, he maintained a strict discipline, rose early, worked hard, read much, and was one of the chief debaters in the prison commune. He was also known as a patient, sensitive, and helpful comrade. After his jail time, when no charges could be proved against him, he was still banished in November 1903 to eastern Siberia. While in prison in March 1903, he was elected to the, exe to, to the executive of the newly formed All-Caucasian Federation of Social Democratic Groups. Since it was very rare for an imprisoned comrade to be elected to a committee, this action gives an idea of Stalin's importance to the Caucasus organization. Stalin's banishment to Siberia coincided with the buildup to the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, he and his comrades made use of the confusion to escape almost immediately on arrival in Siberia. By the end of January 1904, he was back in Tiflis. As soon as Stalin returned, he was called upon to take a stand on the issues that had led to the split between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. The majority of the socialists and the Caucasus were Mensheviks, and even many of the Bolsheviks were for compromise. Despite this large majority for the Mensheviks, Stalin soon took a stand with Lenin and the Bolsheviks. He started writing in the Georgian Party Press in vigorous support of the Bolshevik line. In his first article, he wrote that the party is the militant group of leaders and must be a coherent, centralized organization. His strong political position brought him into contact with Lenin, who, from abroad, asked for copies of Stalin's articles. Along with this, with his ideological uh, battle against the Mensheviks, Stalin was, at the same time, deeply involved in the revolutionary struggles that were building up throughout the country as part of the 1905 revolution. Stalin's center was the Caucasus. Besides participating and organizing the workers' strike, uh, Stalin immediately started the practical implementation of the Bolshevik call for pre preparation for armed uprising. He became the main organizer, inspirer, and guide of the military organization in the Caucasus. An efficient and secret, secret laboratory 
for explosives like explosives was also set up through the struggles a number of fighting squads were set up they participated in the numerous revolts and attacks on ruling class gunda gangs and kept contact with peasant guerrillas in the later period of downswing of the revolution when the party faced a serious shortage of funds some of the best fighting squads were used for major and daring money actions Stalin played the principal role in building up and directing this very secret technical branch of the party. Uh, he also go ahead and say articles. it. Go ahead, go ahead and say what it was. One of the things. Oh, yeah. No. We don't have to banks. imply it. <laughs> he was absolutely robbing banks. Like, this, is, this is the coolest thing about that and then them literally robbing trains of guns. He was taking loans that he didn't intend to pay back. <laughs> so, uh, during this uh, wait, uh, Stalin played a principal role in building up and uh, he also wrote articles during this period explaining the Marxist uh, approach to insurrection in December 1905 Stalin attended his first all-Russia conference of the Bolsheviks where it was decided to build unity with the Mensheviks it is here that he met Lenin for the first time he also attended the April 1906 Unity Congress, where he was the only Bolshevik out of 11 delegates from the Caucasus. The rest were all Mensheviks. He was also the only Bolshevik from the Caucasus who attended the 1907 Congress. At both Congresses, one of the points of discussion was resolutions lead it, uh, led by the Mensheviks and Trotsky calling for bans on armed actions and money seizures. Of course, Trotsky would be against the cool stuff. However, the Caucasus continued to be the main center for such actions with an estimate of 1,150 such actions taking place between 1905 and 1908. Towards the end of 1907, Stalin was elected to the Baku Committee. This oil town of 50,000 workers had workers of various nationalities and religions facing severe exploitation. Stalin soon united the workers and developed a lone center of struggle during a dark period of the Stolopin reaction. Adopting a new identity, he set up residence and the secret printing press in the Muslim part of the city. In this period, Stalin started writing for the first time in Russian. In 1908, Stalin was arrested but continued to write articles and guide party activities from inside the jail. 1909, he was again banished but again escaped within four months. Stalin returned via St. Petersburg and found the disorganized state of the party headquarters in the capital. On returning to Baku, he wrote a strong description of the state of affairs and called for an all-Russia paper published from Russia. He also later called for the practical directing center to be transferred to Russia. After many months of intensive work in Baku and articles for the party organ abroad, Stalin was again arrested in March 1910. After some months in jail, he was again banished to Siberia he remained until June 1911, this time being forbidden to return to the Caucasus or any big city. He settled in a town near St. Petersburg in Moscow. Excuse me. He was, however, again arrested within two months. Excuse me. After a few months in jail, he was again released but had to live outside the big cities. Uh, during this period, 
the first Bolshevik Central Committee, elected by the January 1912 Bolshevik Conference, nominated Stalin onto the committee in his very first meeting. One of Stalin's first tasks after becoming a Central Committee member was to publish the first issue of the Bolshevik daily paper, Pravda. He was, however, almost immediately arrested again. <laughs> Jesus Christ. After three months in prison and two months banishment in Siberia, he escaped again. He reached St. Petersburg in time to lead the campaign for the elections to the Duma. Uh, though the Bolsheviks won only six seats, it represented 80% of the industrial workers. At the end of 1912 and the beginning of 1913, Stalin spent a few weeks abroad where he met in detailed discussions with Lenin and other comrades. It was during this period that he wrote his famous theoretical book on the national question, he returned to St. Petersburg in February 1913, but was betrayed within a week by another member of the Central Committee, Malinovsky, an agent of the Tsar's secret police. This agent also betrayed another Central Committee member, Sverdlov. Uh, both Stalin and Sverdlov were banished to the remotest parts of Siberia from where escape was the most difficult. Lenin made elaborate plans to arrange for their escape, but the escape plans themselves were made through the same secret agent. Rather than arrange escape, this agent only arranged for a closer watch to be kept on the Central Committee members. Thus, Stalin was forced to remain this time in exile for four long years until the February bourgeois revolution of 1917 resulted in the overthrow of the Tsarist regime. It was then that he was allowed to return to St. Petersburg, where he arrived on 12 March 1917. From then until Lenin's arrival in April, he led the party center. Looking back on Stalin's political life, the political life of around 20 years before the revolution stands out as a model of courage, self-sacrifice, dedication, and devotion to the cause of revolution. Besides the long years in prison and banishment, Stalin almost always lived in the underground, in close and living contact with the masses. With such a difficult life of total dedication, there was hardly any time for Stalin to have much of a private life. His first marriage was with his youth, was in his youth to Ekaterina Svanids, Svanzd, Ekaterina S, the sister of one of his socialist comrades at the Tiflis Seminary. They had one son who, after Ekaterina's death during the 1905 revolution, was brought up by her parents. Stalin's second marriage was to Nadezva. Alleluia, the daughter of one of Stalin's close worker comrades. He had close links with the family, and they always sent parcels of food, clothing, and books during his banishment days. The second marriage, however, only took place when both were assigned to Tsaritsyn, later named Stalingrad, during the Civil War after the October Revolution. Stalin is the living embodiment of the Arthur D.W. meme. It's like, that sign won't stop me. I don't know how to read. <laughs> yeah, He's I like, think that Stalin, is... Out. Yeah, the, the Man of Steel is a good, a good uh, name for him. You know, it's like, it's all that, that, that he went through and, and kept going. And I think that's where you could look at the same thing Lenin was going through. They were both being exiled they were both being pushed underground they were being locked up there were attempts made on their lives all types of stuff and 
Meanwhile, you got groups like the Mensheviks that are collaborating with these people. You know what I mean? They're like, we can work it out. Let's or the, or the Social Democrats. <laughs> like, we you know what? We could uh, collaborate our way into uh, into uh, some type of liberation because like and then you see the revolutionaries that are really in the mud what's going on with them and i think that kind of like highlights even what goes on in the imperial core like look what happened with the panthers in the 60s while how they were under uh immense oppression while other so-called communist parties nothing really was happening to them you know and it's like it begs the question is like well what were they doing versus what they were doing you know, and so if the states, the states trying not to shut you up, if they're not, if they're not coming after you, or if they're not trying to push propaganda on you, if they're not trying to exile you, if they're, you know, then you probably, uh, you know, what is it? That looks like you might be working with them if you're not doing, if you're not getting any type of suppression. You know, like uh, I think everyone thinks that's why I think when Mao puts out like revolution isn't uh, a dinner party. You know, it's like. You 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 go through the struggles, and without the struggles, it's like you're not you're not gonna get there. You're not gonna get that 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 liberation without the struggles. I don't know who thinks, uh, who's pushing the notion that somehow we're gonna vote vote our way out of the system, or somehow we're gonna be able to, you know, talk talk our way out of it or something. You know, and it's I think that's like the counter revolutionary aspect of it. Like the entire time, Stalin and 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 Lenin were going through these things as the people they were trying to say take the easy route, you know, take the easy route, take take, you know, the li- those liberalisms that get constantly pushed. Like the it's more comfortable that we don't get locked up. Is the end goal revolution or not? Like, that's the question. Sorry, you know I can rant. <laughs> no, I mean you're right. It's a big issue with a lot of the the American communist parties in general, they all start pushing for electoral wins and then that's, it just ends. That's, that's all it is. Cause what are you going to accomplish? You're going to get elected and then what? You're going to have no power, no matter if you're a, a local election or, or, you know, a presidential election, you're going to be the only communist in a sea of liberals like the closest thing I can think of to useful that, that some of those groups have started pushing is like school board stuff. Like that could potentially be useful, but also at the same time, I have very low standard, low expectations for that because of the history of the communist parties here. Yeah, I think that when we're talking about survival in the system versus like, you know, uh, the class antagonisms, it's like a whole nother ball game. You know, like something something can be utilized by uh, abolishing the police or, or defunding the police that could uh, serve uh, a purpose in helping push forward the revolution on a different line. But, you know, it's like um, what what Huey points out when he talks about the political consequences that happen. If there's no, if you elect somebody and this person that you elect doesn't do what the people ask them to do and there's no political 
or there's no consequence behind it, there's no political power there. It lacks the political power, and it's nothing. So then it brings back the question of my, where does political power come from? Because those consequences, you oh, you're not. <laughs> yeah, and it's and, and and we get put in this same thing where we're at, keep asking the bourgeois, you know, uh, officials to uh, tend to our needs, but you know, at the end of the day, they're gonna they're, they they answer to the ruling class. Which is not the people right now. That's unfortunate, but that's what we're trying to get. Yeah, that was a, a big problem that honestly came about when all the the, the protests were going on. Was uh, was it Kwame? The Indy Ten BLM told us that we weren't allowed to associate with Kwame because he was too radical. But then at the same time, we're posting their pumpkins on Halloween that had the communist manifesto and a hammer and sickle. And it's like, especially now that I'm, I like get to see how the people are that they told us not to associate with. They're just doing the right thing. And those other groups are just trying to get their moment in the spotlight by the guess. Because it's all just a, a big popularity contest for a lot of them yeah socialism and stuff where you're talking about like the communist manifesto it's it's messed up that the opportunists are taking you know the line of commodifying uh you know things are slogans of the panther party slogans of socialism so slogans of mao and uh are just using them as a way of baiting people into something that is nothing within ideological lines of these revolutionaries. It's like, yeah, we read the Communist Manifesto, but uh, we also believe that ca- capitalism can be regulated. Like, wait, wait, no, you didn't read the same book I read. <laughs> Just between either that or, like, my brother didn't know that fucking Huey Newton was a a Marxist. He didn't know any of them were. Like, we had an argument about it because he told me that he had a tattoo of Huey Newton. And uh, once I started actually reading stuff, I was like, you see, you're an anarchist, an anti-communist, but you have a communist on your on your arm. And he was like, "Uh, no, he was an anarchist. He's very anti-authoritarian. And I just started listing off his what he had said about anti-authoritarians these people just a lot of people just have no idea they just because everything's watered down because of how they're portrayed through the media and what we're allowed to you know learn about them yeah it's typically from somebody who's never read state and revolution you know understanding the the point of suppressing the bourgeois class <laughs> and how necess- how much of a necessity that is they don't just they don't just go away yeah well it's was it there, there's a meme i have somewhere honestly that's uh talking about how they're and it's an ancon and they're like oh i'm anti-authoritarian or whatever and then it someone just marches another country marches in after revolution and is like 
All right, well, then we're going to use that authority. Like, either we take the authority and use it properly, or it's going to get used against us. Yeah, and it's messed up when you hear someone say that the dictatorship of the proletariat is some type of uh, um, authority that's bad for the people. It's like it's in the it's in the, of the proletariat. It's the people. It's of the working class. So it's, it's like it's because the CIA purposely demonized the the word dictatorship and misused it. It's like that's not. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, like, that's why I like what Fred Hampton puts it. Like, if you're scared of socialism, you're scared of yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's even, it's in that document I, that I show you, uh, that I showed you before from the CIA where they declassified it. It says that the Americans' understanding of, of a dictatorship is completely wrong. I mean, they don't immediately admit to it in that document, obviously, but who else would have done it? It would have been the government. They purposely do it so that it, when people hear dictatorship of the proletariat, they just immediately focus on the word dictatorship because there's no context given to the way that we demonize the word. Yeah, Tom. Uh, how do I? Tom, you should be good. Are you there? Can't hear you, Tom. There's two toms. Are you there? Can you hear me now? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Yeah, democracy and dictatorship go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. If uh, democracy really means the inclusion of the middle class and dedicating to the lower class along with the ruling class. And once you eliminate classes, you eliminate the need for democracy and dictatorship. Yeah. 
you know, every state going back to the first state, you know, slave states back like Rome and Greece and stuff were, were also dictatorships of a class. It's like the slaves didn't have any vote in Rome or Greece. It was the, the freemen who got to participate to a certain degree, but it was still the dictatorship of the aristocrats. You know, they let people vote, but that doesn't mean they gave them real power. Just like today, the oligarchy dictates to the society, and the middle class people will get to vote for Tweedledum or Tweedledee, but it doesn't really change policies. You know, so during the, when the Republicans were in power, the Democrats were, oh, let's defund the police. Now the Democrats are in power and they double the funding for the police. Well, you know, they do the but then they'll say to the people, well, it's still you're better off than if uh, Trump was in power. You know, it, it's always a, a show. And Mark said it, Lenin said it, because that aspect doesn't change. As long as it's a, a bourgeois class dictatorship, it doesn't matter how they, you know, it's like the game show. You know, <laughs> the, the game show can change its name, but it doesn't change the fact that, you know, they decide who gets to play and who gets to win and who gets to lose. You know, the, the ruling class is always going to do what's in its favor. You know, what's going to maximize its uh, rate of profit and you know how they hustle people to accept that you know so the people think well this is the best of all possible worlds and in the 50s if you look at the popular culture in the 50s it really emphasized that this is as good as it can be you know by the 60s people were beginning to challenge and say there's got to be something better than this. You know, the, 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 the upsurge that in my generation in the 60s was not because we were in a depression. You know, in 1967, the average person had more spendable cash than they've ever had before or since. But what the young people were saying is, if this is the best there is, it sucks. You know, We'd rather be poor blacks than be middle-class white Americans, you know? We'd rather be Native Americans, you know, because these people have some real community. We got nothing except the mall, you know? There's no quality to this. It's all superficial and, and you know, it's like, okay, so you got a job, you got you, you can afford to have... Uh, a, a boat and go fishing in the summer or you can have a motorcycle along with your car but that's it that's the best it's ever going to be you know people are still alienated from each other people are alienated from what they do eight hours a day you know there's there's got to be something better and that's why we began to listen to Mao and uh, to read Marx and stuff, because it, you know we're looking, we were looking for another way to go. And the anarchist idea was, 
Well, we can do it all by thought, changing the way people think. And the Marxists said, no, you've got to change the structure. You know, you've got to change the basis of the society. If you don't change the basis of the society, it doesn't matter if fuck what people think. You know? It's like, I, I remember I had a kid I went to high school with, dropped some acid and thought he was Superman and jumped off a roof. Well, he may have thought he was Superman, but when he hit the ground, he knew he wasn't. You know? <laughs> reality, reality rules, you know? And, you know, when they were calling us to go die in Vietnam, you know, we're supposed to believe that, you know, these people in black pajamas are a threat to our national security. What, are they going to sail their sandpans up the Hudson River? You know, come on, be real. You know, the U.S. is an imperialist power. You know, it's, it's over there to try to take what they have, you know. It's not protecting us. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, you know, and yet, and then they were telling us this is a war for democracy. You know, it's like, what kind of democracy is that? You know, that the richest guy gets to bully the, the poor guy? And that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I wanted to add on something, too, what, what we just said, too. Like, a lot of that... Um, I think that the, uh, the abilities that we got when we came out of the Great Depression and we had more things was based off of the imperialism and proxy wars and stuff like that. It's like the concessions that we got or the labor aristocracy got was based off of the, uh, the oppression, third world nations and the oppression that came out of war. And it's like... There's, there's that always that, that connection there, you know? It's like, yeah, we might have finer things uh, superficially, like, like you pointed out. It's like, and where, and how, how did it operate? How does it work? How did we get to this point? So uh, that's all I wanted to say about that. I mean, yeah. Finer things that when it actually comes down to it, all of it's made of pot metal and broken dreams. The fact that, you know, we have 85 candy bars doesn't mean jack shit when it comes down to it because it all came from, like you said, from the oppression of other people. Yeah, Tom. Yeah, I think that's why Chewie emphasized in his a speech at Boston College that we need to see this revolution not as an American revolution, but as a world revolution against the American empire. That we have to create a, a situation where the wealth of the world gets shared out in a, in a democratic and equal, you know, qualitarian way so that everybody can enjoy the same lifestyle, you know, that uh, we need to put the, ha the power in the hands of not just the American working class, but the world working class, 
you know, the people in India and Africa and South America have to have as much voice and deserve more um, consideration in how the world's resources are developed so that they can get on a par with us. You know, so it's not just a few rich countries and a bunch of poor countries, but so that the, 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 the formerly poor countries become just as nice to live in, you know, and, and I think we can get a lot nicer than what we've got, but it's more a question of quality than quantity. You know, it's like you can only have one motorcycle at a time, you know, <laughs> you can only ride one. So, you know, these, you know, it's like, uh, people that have 20 you know oh, what God. the hell is that you know what i mean well, it's that, like, the, the, all the like the the field basically of, of car dealerships of cars that will never be driven it's just a waste yeah and it it's like uh, you know they're talking about the, eliminating the difference between town and country you know i mean we can we can create a, a cities that you know are green and um you know have birds and flowers and trees and stuff uh so people aren't living in in you know it's like a slum is a horrible place to have to live you got to get up every morning and look at it you know smell it you know <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and we have the technology to do all these things. You know, there, there's uh, all kinds of drawing board perfect cities that are, you know, out there, but they can't be created because there's no real profit in it. You know, they'd rather squeeze the, the people to the point of, of bare subsistence so that somebody, you know, somebody else can have Twenty trillion dollars, you know, and uh, you know, just communism is just common sense, and I think that's the way to explain it to ordinary people. Is it's the common good makes common sense, you know. So let's do the do the commonly correct thing, you know. Uh, Capital doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like at the end of the day, if you've got 10 people who have, or now we got like five people who have as much wealth as half the world, you know, and the other half are, are you know, their kids are malnourished. Uh, you know, they're dying from preventable diseases. Where's the sense in that? You know, what, why does Elon Musk need to have, be so rich? Yeah, the, when he hasn't done anything. Other than steal other people's ideas. Yeah. And we absolutely could have that exact kind of life very easily. Like, 
we were talking about with the you know people who have 20 motorcycles and these fields of cars that are ne that'll never be driven or you hear about you know bezos destroying laptops and stuff because they haven't been used yet those resources could very like number one the, those resources were stolen from other countries at, by means of extortion in the first place so just not doing that in general would automatically set us off to a better foot but we could all like all of humanity could just you know compile resources and have just a better life in general as opposed to like you said having one guy that's you know or five people that have the more wealth than basically everyone else and they're doing nothing with it all they do is they flaunt it Yes. One of the jobs. One of the jobs my dad had at the end of World War II was dumping stuff into the ocean, like jeeps, typewriters, all this stuff that you know the U.S. had sent overseas. And there we are in Asia, where you know people are in need of everything, and the U.S. government is just taking these shiploads of typewriters and stuff and dumping them in the ocean when they could have just given them to the people of Asia to use. You know, but the reason they did it was because they wanted to, you know, clear the market of all this, these goods, you know, so they could make new stuff and sell it. You know, uh, I can remember when I was a little kid when the farmers uh, were dumping um, you know, truckloads of, of milk in the fields right around here because they wanted to drive up the price of milk. And I'm thinking, you know, what about all the babies that could use that milk, you know? Mm -hmm. How can we, how can you destroy food when there's people who could use it, who, who are hungry, you know? It just seemed, you know, as a little kid, it made made me angry and sick to see it, you know? Yeah, I remember being reprimanded when I was younger because my grandpa asked me uh, what I would do if I won the lottery. And my response was give it away to all the poor people. And I remember my mom scolded me and then my grandpa proceeded to tell, tell me about how they were just drug addicts and stuff like that. So it's definitely ingrained in us that somehow we're deserving. And if you're not, you know, reaping the benefits of society, then it's your fault and that's what you deserve. Yeah, we're in a uh, a post scarcity. You know, we have a uh, a level of food and and homes and water that we could distribute it throughout the planet. But we like to uh, we they like to create this this uh, the supply and demand. Like it's they make it they uh, 
they design it in certain ways. You know, they want you to think that there is a shortage. They want you to think that um, these things, and it's what happens. Like, I work in the trucking industry. I mean, I, I, I see how much stuff gets dumped. You know, how much stuff does they just get rid of? You know, it's just like as simple as going up to Little Caesars when they close at nine. And they're like, all these pizzas that are already made, they just throw them away because they don't want anybody to have them. It's like, to, com- to, to continue that, you know, and you know, I told you, I dumpster dive. That's something I do. I go, some of the, some of the places I go, they'll dump out hundreds of dollars worth of clothing but before they do it, they dump bleach on it and then they cut it up so no one else can wear it. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Target uh, Target puts everything in their trash compactor so that you can't use it. Uh, Walgreens throws things out uh, within once it, it once it's within thirty days of its expiration date. So you literally have 30 days from the day that you're, you're going by. All that stuff gets thrown out, and it gets thrown in a lock dumpster. Uh, what? I said Bezos smashes laptops that don't get used so that nobody can use them. Like, it's gross. That, and then not to mention the fact that there's absolutely no reason our city should be this densely populated. Like, Wyoming has less than a million people, and it's just emptiness, but New York is crowded, it's so crowded that you can't drive a car, basically. Like, there's no reason for that, other than competition. Yeah, I read one time where you could fit the population of the whole world in Texas and give each person an acre. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, 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 I've driven across Texas and there's miles and miles of nothing. Yeah, we, we drove, one of my family moved out here from uh, Washington State. Driving out here, you see the signs that tell you like next rest stop 300 miles or whatever. So you're supposed to get gas then, like why? Which then, I mean, it just boils down to a way to make money. Someone can make money off that. There's all the, the roadside assistance and stuff that comes in and swoops in and takes your money. Yeah, I, I, um, I want to add on something, but then I got to go right after. Um, I just want to say, like, there's the those contradictions that come out of that. You know, it's like when you see places like Chicago that was designed to have, like... Um, a people that are there at the expense of the the owning class, right? To be exploited. These are a lot of the immigrants. Uh, you had the black belt in Chicago. All these. Then there was a conflict. The 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 rise of the middle class, where um, they wanted to live closer to the city, and you know, and the rise of gas prices and all these different conflicts, which has come come about this system. I mean, it's like it's. You know, one minute you want uh, uh, the the 
the working, the low in, uh, extremity of the stratus of the proletariat to have be right there in the industries of Chicago. Then the next minute, you you also want the gentrification and the the you know that comes out of the you know the profits of of living there, right? The profits of of gentrification, these the cost of living out there. So it's like one side of the city is is really poor, while the other side of the city is rich. It's like it's it's weird. It's crazy. Yeah, I but, mean it's even where I'm at now. You just walk a couple blocks, and it's totally different from from here. I mean, this is a more more poor part of Cleveland. Just a couple blocks, and it's all you know, rich old white people. Yeah, it definitely makes more sense to have a planned economy where you plan things out from the perspective of the, the end user, you know, and the, the people who are going to benefit or suffer should be the ones to decide how it should go. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, you look at the, the, you know, the technology we have, like they have trains now that can go 200 and more miles an hour. And where are they? They're in China, they're in Japan. You know, here we still got trains that are like from the 1940s. You know? <laughs> the uh, 80s, we had an infrastructure plan. And it was all public transportation and stuff, and they just the road company or the, the oil companies because they make money off the roads for like ten dollars. Yeah, yeah. They the oil companies bought up the trolley tracks and stuff just so that everybody would have to have a car to get around. You know, and uh, you know it's ridiculous. Peterson. Sitting and telling you that the most liberating thing a human can have is their own vehicle or some shit like that. Yeah, except that uh, you can't breathe the air. You know, <laughs> like when they took the the lead out of gas, there was a marked de decline in violence in the cities because of the lead fumes were causing people causing lead poisoning which caused people to become irritable and, and violent, among other things. You know, I mean, it probably destroys your kidneys and, you know, other stuff. But it was just from the breathing the air from all the car exhaust was making people violent. When I, when I was over in Europe, I was surprised, like in, in places like Amsterdam, how clean the air was in a city because they have uh, a trolley system that works. Uh, most of the people have bicycles to get around in, you know, so that, uh, uh, you know, if you only have to go a short distance, it makes more sense to have a bike. Then you don't have to, you know, you can park it in a rack instead of taking up all that space for a parking lot, you know, and people got more exercise, so they were healthier, you know. Hmm? It's just yeah, a lot more. It's the same situation there. 
Like public transit is just amazing there. Nobody really has a need for a car. Yeah, public transit. I used to take public transit in Boston, and some of the trains, like the lines that went out to the suburbs, were not bad. But the inner city train lines, it was like, you know, going down into hell to get around. You know, everything was all falling apart, and the trains were always breaking down, and it was so obvious that everything was being decided on the basis of who gets to ride the train or needs to ride the train rather than an equitable distribution of resources. Mm-hmm. But the real question is, how do we get from here to there? And that's, that's where I think the Panthers have put out the most logical theory of building people's power from the grassroots up. You know, not by petitioning the government for change, but by creating things like, you know, the free food programs and uh, free health care and free clothing and, you know, uh, housing communes and stuff and building from the grassroots so that as the people get stronger and stronger, the system gets weaker and weaker until we reach a point where we have the power to overthrow them. And keeping in mind all the time that that's what we're aiming towards. You know, I think the the Panther Party in the 60s divided into the two extremes of reformism and, uh, you know, pigs want war, let's do it now, you know, on the other extreme. That um, what uh, Fred Hampton said was, we're not going to run up and down the street fighting with pigs now we're preparing for proletarian revolution you know that we have to keep in mind that the gun is going to solve the problem in the end but it's not the gun it's the people that are important if you don't have the people together uh, you can't just run around with a gun shooting pigs and expect to change anything absolutely Well, I think that was a good way that, to go. <laughs> huh? I think that was a solid note to leave on. Yeah. Just saying that ends it right there. It was a good discussion, at least. Yeah, I can't wait to the Trotsky uh, chapter. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm signing yeah. off. Red salute, all power. Red salute. Panther love y'all. All power. All power. Recording stopped. Recording.
reflections. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Just don't worry about it. Learn how to use. Fire.